This Choircast podcast episode is brought to you by the book Letting Go, How I Failed Gay Conversion Therapy and Learned to Love Myself by Aaron Simnowitz. In this book, I take the reader on my journey as I navigate the controversial divide between the evangelical church and homosexuality. At 19 years old, my Christian faith and obedience to Jesus was the most important thing in my life. However, my attraction to other males tested my loyalties, as I believed I only had two choices, either choose Jesus and deny my sexuality, or choose my sexuality and denounce Jesus. In letting go, I hold no punches as I explicitly tell my story with relentless vulnerability, showcasing the emotional pain, anguish, and frustration, yet humorously engaging the readers simultaneously. This book gives readers just one example of a life that was tortured by gay conversion therapy and how it is possible to come out on the other side of self-acceptance. You can pick up this book at Amazon.com right now. Welcome to the Wild Olive Podcast. Game-changing conversation about literature, culture, and the Bible. In today's episode of Wild Olive, we're talking about the Bible's portrayal of a visitation from God, one could say. I'm your host, Jennifer Bird. And I'm your other host, Jean Patrol. Jennifer. Hey, Jean. So, Edwin Muir, we're talking about a poem by a mid-20th century Scottish poet, Edwin Muir, probably most famous for translating Kafka into English, but he also has a poem called Annunciation, which makes use of the story from Luke and Matthew of an angel visiting Mary. What a delightful topic for a male poet to engage, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's interesting. Do you want to start us off by reading the passage from Gospel of Luke so that it's fresh in our minds? I think that's a great idea. So this is from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 36. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary, and he came to her and said, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was much perplexed by his words and pondered what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I am a virgin? The angel said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called Son of God. And now your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. 
Then Mary said, Here am I, the slave of the Lord. Let it be with me according to your word. Then the angel departed from her. Thank you for that. I love your storytelling voice. (laughs) Thank you, Jean. (laughs) I feel like a kid. That's my intention, actually, but not in a condescending way, but more in a this is a story way. Yes. Yeah. It's um, story is just a fundamental way that people attempt to make sense of their the universe, exactly. right? Exactly. Communicate with each other, and we we need story. Well, listeners, I think I'm going to go ahead and read you the poem. And of course, Jennifer and I will have lots to say about both the gospel passage and the poem, but we thought we would just give it to you up front. Yes. So here is Edwin Muir's The Annunciation. The angel and the girl are met. Earth was the only meeting place, for the embodied never yet traveled beyond the shore of space. The eternal spirits in freedom go. See, they have come together. See, while the destroying minutes flow, each reflects the other's face, till heaven in hers and earth in his shine steady there. He's come to her from far beyond the farthest star, feathered through time, Immediacy of strangest strangeness is the bliss that from their limbs all movement takes. Yet the increasing rapture brings so great a wonder that it makes each feather tremble on his wings. Outside the window, footsteps fall into the ordinary day. And with the sun along the wall, pursue their unreturning way that was ordained in eternity. Sound's perpetual roundabout rolls its numbered octaves out and hoarsely grinds its battered tune. But through the endless afternoon, these neither speak nor movement make, but stare into their deepening trance as if their gaze would never break. I feel I have to tell you first, you first. <laughs> I feel like we just wrapped up a love scene. Yes, I agree. It sounds like that. It feels like a falling in love moment. Yes. Before we talk more about that, and I do want to talk more about that, I want to say to our listeners and to us to remind us, nobody is ever supposed to understand a poem right away. <laughs> That would be weird. A, a, po- a, a poem is like, have you heard of the like the way that vitamins work? It's like a time release effect. Right. You you take the vitamin, but it might not hit your bloodstream until whatever, two, two hours later or something like that. And poems are like that with meaning. So if there are folks listening to the podcast and, and you just hear that poem and you think, what? That's a normal reaction. That's how everybody feels. That's how I feel. That's how Jennifer feels. That's how everybody feels the first time they read a poem. So poems only release their meaning in the wrestling with the poem. 
So I just wanted to say that because I don't want anyone to feel like they're alone if they listen to a poem and can make no sense whatsoever of it. Because poems have to be read and reread and reread and talked about. And you have to savor particular lines or particular images like you would a chocolate or something in order for them to give you any pleasure. Otherwise, they just kind of blow past you because they're made for consumption and savoring over time. They're not made to hit you all at once like an advertisement, like you understand it right away, right? That's not how poetry works. So I just wanted to say that so that no one feels like, whoa, am I missing something? No, you're just reading or hearing a poem for the first time. Listeners, you can get this poem online very easily. And and this is one of those poems because it is from the mid 20th century. And English changes a lot, even in 50 years, poetry changes a lot. So you can read it online and you can back the podcast up and re-listen, but nobody ever understands a poem the first time around, unless it's a really dopey poem, like the kind that you find in Hallmark cards. That's it. (laughs) I'm really glad that you said that because one of the things you're also highlighting f- for our listeners is is one of the things about our engagements here on this podcast, which is poets and authors help us to reflect in ways that I know I didn't always regarding scripture. So I've I have tended to have a very face value engagement with scripture. And there are actually at times deeper meanings there that are being maybe glossed over. Um, but that having this practice with poetry helps us to sit with and see some of these other meanings as well in the scriptures. So it works like that for me. It does. Yeah. 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 So give me your hot take, Jennifer. What do you notice about each of these works of literature? Right. Well, I think the first thing that pops out to me from the the biblical passage is this parallel that we have going on here. And it's this, the language of you have found favor. I'd like to suggest to our listeners that this isn't new with Mary, but is actually what is said to all of the women in the Hebrew Bible who have struggled to conceive and all of a sudden they're able to conceive There's a visitation from an angel who tells them they're about to conceive or some something like that and happens to at least three women, maybe four I can think of off the top of my head. And so God visiting saying this struggle you've had is going to be addressed. You have found favor. I think we'll come back to this language later on in our podcast, but this is not the first time we're hearing this language or this setup with women and and these kinds of encounters, it's very much connected to the Hebrew Bible traditions, I would say. And I think that's an important thing to raise. At least it has been for many of the people I've been in classrooms with. This is a trope, if you will. And what the rest of the story does with that trope is of interest. What what about you, Jean? What what stands out to you immediately in our passages? Yeah, the line that I have always really loved from the gospel story is the line, Mary pondered these things in her heart. I like that line. I tend to read scripture in the same way that I might read other kinds of sacred scriptures like the Tao Te Ching 
or the Bhagavad Gita, or I had a phase in graduate school when I was throwing little sticks and reading the I Ching. And so I tend (laughs) to read scripture the same way. So I'm trying to read the story as a picture of invisible process, a kind of an invisible process that any human being might use to attempt to relate to the divine, let's say. And I that phrase pondered these things in her heart. What I do with that is think, okay, Jean, how can you ponder something in your heart? How do you do that? What are you pondering in your heart? So I like that. Um, so that stands out to me. And in a moment, let me ask you more about those Hebrew Bible passages. But for now, let's hear a little something from Matt. Hey there, listeners. This is Matt Byrne, producer and editor for Wild Olive, with a few questions for you about today's material so far. How does the angel's presence affect each story? Do you see them as being divine entities or symbolic figures with another meaning? What does the word virgin mean to you? It's a charged word, so besides the obvious definition, what feelings or thoughts do you associate with it, and how does that affect your interpretation of the Bible? Just remember, there are no wrong answers. Now, back to the show. Okay, so just before the break, I said I'd be very interested to hear more from you about those Hebrew Bible passages where women are struggling to conceive and then miraculously they're able to conceive. And maybe that's all you wanted to say about that, but I guess I just wanted to affirm that I agree that it's a scene where there is this extraordinary birth, an extraordinary birth, kind of like trumpets sounding, saying, this is a very important person who's being born. Is there anything else you wanted to say about that or other stories of extraordinary births that you wanted to call our attention to? Yes, I. that was such a lovely punt into into my court because one of the things that I think is helpful to many people I've engaged these stories with is to raise this realm of conversation that talking about Mary as a virgin is not actually the main point of the story in the ancient context. When we have other ancient stories that talk about women conceiving miraculously, whether they've been having sex with their partner or not, and many of them had been, but then there's something special that takes place. And that child is special. And we can see that in the birth narrative for Siddhartha Gautama, who becomes the Buddha. We see that in birth narratives for ancient kings and so forth, that when those scenes appear, it is exactly what you said, Jean. We're trying to say something special about the child to be born. And sure, there's an element of patriarchy here as well. But still, the focus is, this is a way of saying this child will be special in some anointed kind of a way. And I use that word anointed trans-religiously speaking, mm-hmm. right? Not, yeah. not just as Christian or Jewish anointing of a prophet, for instance, but So that what we see happening within the Christian tradition is a hyper focus, it seems to me, on the virginity of Mary. And, and that's heightened. And 
and I don't know that we necessarily want to spend too much time talking about this part, but that's heightened by a mishandling, perhaps, or even a misleading translation of some of the Hebrew Bible passages. I talk about that in my book. I don't want to get into it too much here because I'd rather us talk about what this story is doing for for people today or even a, a way to think about it differently. So that this idea of, yes, she is called a Parthenos in the Luke, in the Luke passage, but Parthenos itself can be translated as either virgin or young woman, depending on the translation committee's preference, to be honest. <laughs> mm, yeah, I appreciate that. And you're right. In your chapter eight, you in permission granted, chapter eight is entitled Born of a Virgin, and you talk about it in great depth. And I agree, we don't have to repeat all of that. And we've talked on the podcast before about how the word virgin doesn't actually appear in <laughs> Isaiah, that Seven. it's um, mm-hmm. kind of got into the Greek translation and then carried into the English translation. So I agree, we don't have to recover the same ground. But I do think that it's worth talking briefly about some of the difficulties of getting really stuck on the idea of Mary as a virgin. We've talked about before, and you talk about in your chapter, the idea that if you celebrate a woman who has never had sex (laughs) as the ideal kind of mother, (laughs) then it's a bit of a diss to the mothers among us. And I think maybe that's everybody, right, who got a baby the other way. Um, <laughs> although there are some extraordinary ways of uh, that that women use to become pregnant, right? right. These day in the right. in these days of incredible reproductive technologies, th- there are there's more than one way to get pregnant these That's days. Right. That's right. And so the point is, celebrating virginity as a feminine ideal really tends to demean the sexuality of ordinary women who have sex and have a baby. And so that can be problematic ideologically. And I do want to acknowledge that. I don't want to ignore it. Absolutely. And, you know, we could take a deep dive here, and I'm trying to pull myself back from doing yeah, yeah. that, because yeah. it is it is worth noting, right, that this idea of saying a virginal woman conceived and is a mother, and that that is a, that is a fairly significant building block in a particular element of Christian beliefs about salvation. And I'll leave it at that for now, maybe a little yeah. bit of a teaser, perhaps. But, sure. you know... I I loved it when I first encountered reading the woman's Bible, which is from the mid mid 19th century women in the United States, some of whom didn't even want to use their name. Wow. Engaging biblical texts about women. Mm. And one African-American woman was bold enough to say, yeah, this putting her on a pedestal for this is a slur on every other mother. Yeah. You know, the, the reality of. This beautiful, powerful, perhaps intimidating, (laughs) whatever you want to call it, thing about women's bodies typically um, being able to do this kind of a process. So I I just think it's interesting, a woman of faith saying that, right? And it's a question that many people over the centuries have raised about this particular passage, especially within the Catholic Church, I'll say the way Mary is in some 
some ways put on a pedestal mm -hmm. and valorated both as virginal and mother, and that many people in these traditions have never been given a chance to stop and actually consider the impossibility of this, mm -hmm. but that they just focus on the anything is possible with God idea, which is in that passage in Luke, right? Instead of thinking about this might be one step beyond what's possible with God. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I understand. You know what? I think it's good to be open about skepticism and doubts and alternative ideas about things. So let me shift into, I'm curious to know, I'm sure you know this, that a number of feminists have tried to define and redefine the meaning of virginity so that it's not a physical state where you've never been penetrated, but a, a, a psychic state where you are not owned. So Diana the Huntress, right, is like the virgin goddess. And even among Christian women, I know that there's a tradition I was reading in, uh, you know, the book also, Dolores Williams has a book called Sisters in the Wilderness, and she talks about the figure of Hagar. And she talks about a lot of different kinds of feminist interpretations of different parts of scripture. And she talks about a tradition among, I think these are Korean Christian women scholars writing about the Virgin Mary as an archetypal figure who pictures a woman who isn't defined by marriage, motherhood, and childbearing, so that you could actually be a wife and a mother and a virgin, because your entire existence is not defined by marriage and motherhood. And I wonder if the, the as an archetype, the idea of the virgin, if it has any resonance for you as an archetypal figure of independence, like, like Diana the Huntress, does that resonate for you at all? That is a, that's an image that I find rather delightful. And I don't think I've ever encountered that or considered it through that lens. I think I am, uh, for better and for worse, well-trained to think of it through the lens of the label virgin is really about how a man has or has not encountered or penetrated a female body. And I say that with no intention around dismissing non-hetero engagements, intimate engagements, but that the language or the label of virgin is really about a hetero sexual engagement and about a woman's body as property. And I am d just delighted to think beyond that. <laughs> Right. And to maybe offer others a way to think beyond that. So I love that suggestion. I wonder if maybe we should step into a little bit more fully, which is what I loved about this poem, which we haven't yes. even talked about yet. Yes. Some we of have the to transition to the poem. Yeah. Some of the upsides, perhaps, of what this poem helps us to see. So in just a moment, we'll get into that.
Jean, I have to say, I'm I'm really eager to ha- hear your take on this poem. Yeah, and we haven't engaged it at all yet, and it's almost it's almost sad to me that I realize we haven't because it was such a rich, affirming poem for me when I read it through your eyes. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about why you brought this poem to my attention and to our readers' attention and the pieces that you find to be enriching. Sure. Yeah. Well, one of the things I find interesting about this poem is that it doesn't mention virginity and it doesn't mention Jesus. The (laughs) emphasis is on the angel's interaction with this girl who, even if we're thinking about the story, the girl would have been, what, 14, 15, something like that, right? Someone we would call these days a child bride. So I'm really interested in narratives about angel-human meetings. I wrote a long article recently, it'll be published soon, about Tony Kushner's Angels in America, where a man who is HIV positive and beginning to experience AIDS begins having an encounters with an angel. And I'm also really fascinated by the German film director Wim Wenders, his movie Wings of Desire, which is about angel-human interactions I also wrote, quite a while ago, I wrote an article about a painting by the Turkish painter Meltem Akhtash, and it's an image of Joan of Arc, and it's actually a diptych, and so Joan, the the soldier, Joan, Joan's a soldier, and she gets her marching orders from some kind of otherworldly being. She hears a voice, and in this diptych, Akhtash pictures the maiden Joan as hearing from an angel. And there's this just sliver of a line between the two paintings that form the diptych. And so that also is, of course, it's a painting, but it's all it's depicting kind of a narrative exploration of this human angel encounter. So one thing I like about Muir's poem is how it focuses on just that encounter. And I think that when people start to tell stories about angels and to picture angels, I think it is an effort to try to give words and image to experiences of extraordinary consciousness that people have. People have these kinds of experiences in all cultures. And it could feel something like, okay, I'm hearing a voice, I'm having thoughts, or I'm accessing some kind of wisdom that feels like it doesn't come from me. What is that? That's what makes people start telling stories about angels or picturing them. And that's what I like about the poem, that it's completely focused on this human-angel interaction. It doesn't have any dogma. It doesn't have any doctrine. It's a girl and an angel in this interaction. And I know that you, when we first started, you said, sounds like we just read a love scene. Is that how it strikes you? It does now, but it didn't the first time. And I thought, well, what? what is it that Jean... <laughs> 
Where does she want to take? Why is does she think this is a helpful way to get at the enunci- what what the church calls the yes. Annunciation scene, right? Yeah. But yeah. this is it's a whole different coming at it. I feel like every time I read poetry with Eugene, I'm like coming at something from the underside, or mm. I'm flipping my perspective around in some way, and. Yeah. And I'm connecting to the scripture differently because of this earthy something that is shining a light on, as you already said, human experiences. And I am, I'm coming out of biblical studies and this background that has taught me to think of scripture through the lens of a spiritualized message. And that so many times for me and other people I've interacted with, it isn't necessarily true for everyone, but for many people who've been raised that way, to, being taught to see the, the spiritual element here, we're missing, we're missing these kind of gut level or just honest experiences of human reality that may be at times beyond words to express. And it makes it possible for us to connect with some of these characters we might not have thought of at connecting with or the extraordinary that's happening in this story isn't unique, but it is extraordinary. And that is something that other people have tried to express as well. I'd love, you know, I'm looking at the poem again and, and wondering if you'd discuss some of the passages that kind of bring light to that. Absolutely. Yeah, I want to comment on what you said just now, too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When this story is used, well, I guess I want to start by saying that the experience that you're having of like, have basically, you're talking about shifting lenses, or just shifting perspectives. That's also the experience that I have. Because I don't think you have to be raised in a conservative tradition to be totally saturated with the meanings that have accumulated with this story over time. You just have to live in the culture and you're going to absorb them. (laughs) So I think that what the church does with this story is use it to emphasize this, the amazingness of Jesus. And Also, as we've talked about, emphasizing this idea of virginity and this complicated thing about, okay, well, Jesus had to be a sinless offering. He was without blemish. And so uh, if sex is the thing that's used to pass on original (laughs) sin, then he has to be conceived without sex. Otherwise, he'll have the sin, right? This very complicated doctrinal stuff. So so the church does that with this story. But what the poet does with this story is to wonder, wow, what would it be like for a 14-year-old girl to encounter an angel? Or even, let's put it this way, what would it be like for a 14-year-old girl to feel addressed by something that she couldn't see? What would it be like for a 14-year-old girl to feel like she was in dialogue with something that was beyond the realm of the visible and the audible. What would, what would that feel like? And even more interestingly, perhaps, is Muir is asking the question, 
what would it be like for an angel? What is it like for an angel to encounter a girl? And so this passage, see, they have come together. See? And those words, see, see, Muir is slowing us down Mm -hmm. and only letting us look at that encounter um, while the destroying minutes flow, each reflects the other's face till heaven in hers and earth in his shine steady there. I'm not surprised that it reads as erotic in some way. I don't mean necessarily sexual, but just very, very charged with life and energy, generative energy, because this is a really momentous interaction for both of them. And I I love that, that Muir portrays this as being as astounding for the angel as for the girl. Yes. Yes. <laughs> really reminds me. I wish all our listeners would rent or stream. We don't rent anymore. <laughs> stream mm-hmm. Vim Vender's Wings of Desire. There is an American remake, but I promise you the German is better because the angels are so enraptured by earth mm-hmm. that they don't want to go back to heaven. <laughs> because if they go back to heaven, there won't be this lovely circus aerialiste in heaven and there won't be the smell of coffee in heaven mm-hmm. or the sound of New York City in right. heaven. And, and who wants to live without that? <laughs> exactly. And what I what I keep thinking about as I engage this and even as I think about this poem is that the sacredness of the ordinary. Yes. Right? That this celebrates and that I know a lot of people in Christian communities would benefit from thinking about differently, right? The sacredness of many of the ordinary, as well as this particular fascinating concept, right? Of something beyond making a visit here with a, just a, just a young woman. Yes. uh, Right. Nothing in her title. She doesn't have titles. She doesn't have property. There's nothing in her makes her special, but she is because of this experience and so forth. Yeah. I just want to call attention to a couple more lines before we close. I know we're trying to wrap up, but I'm also really moved by this idea that, and I'll read the lines first, the increasing rapture brings so great a wonder that it makes each feather tremble on his wings, that the angel is so moved by this interaction with the young woman, that the feathers on his wings are trembling. I also read that as a kind of an affirmation of the earthly, of the ordinary, that I think is really cool. Um, And just also to emphasize your points about how the poem sacralizes the everyday, these lines, sounds perpetual roundabout, rolls its numbered octaves out and hoarsely grinds its battered tune. But through the endless afternoon, these neither speak nor movement make, but stare into their deepening trance as if their gaze would never break. That there's something about the interaction and the moment that makes the ordinary absolutely miraculous and wondrous. And I think that that 
is a state, a state of consciousness that both the story of the Annunciation and this poem here, I think that's what the poem and the story lift up, a a state of consciousness, a state of being that is so highly charged that it transfigures the ordinary, the the earthly. And maybe out on a limb here, the earthly and the divine, because there's a relation there that that they are both affected by each other. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Anything else you can think of before we wrap up? I just, this was a fun conversation to have with Eugene. Thank you for sharing this poem with me. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed it as well. Me too. All right. Thank you for listening to episode 10 of the Wild Olive Podcast. If you enjoy game-changing conversations about literature, culture, and the Bible, subscribe for the latest episode and tell others all about Wild Olive. Nick Stubblefield composes our music, and you'll find episode notes at our website, wildolivebibleandculture.org. You can ask Jean or Jennifer a question by emailing connect at wildolivebibleandculture.org. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.